Good afternoon, listeners. This is Jonathan Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday at this time to promote and to defend public education. And we've got a fairly full program for you this afternoon. Uh, there's been a lot in the press lately, uh, and the public school lobbyists have been very, very active doing their facts and their figures. And the left-wing uh, groups have also been very effective getting out the information about the underfunding of public schools. Uh, and they have succeeded in large part changing the rhetoric of the uh, education talk from what used to be the virtues of educational choice for parents to the concerns about equality of opportunity or the gross inequalities currently in our Australian education systems because we have a dual system. We have a private one and we have a public one. And the private one is overfunded and the public one is underfunded. But the question is, the rhetoric might have changed, but is there really the political will to change the funding? We'll see with the Albanese government. They're pretty good on the talk, but can they walk the walk? And that's what our press release 994 is about. So we'll ask Andy to read it for you. Teaching unions and public school supporters need to be congratulated for successful lobbying, but over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Teacher unions and other public service pressure groups like Save Our Schools have succeeded in recent years and months in putting the public school resourcing and teacher shortage problems on the media map. For example, in the last week, the Australian Education Union Victorian branch persuaded the Andrews government to desist from cutting visitor teacher positions. And economists from Save Our Schools, the Australian Education Union and the Australia Institute have produced facts and figures proving the gross inequalities in funding between the private and public sector and the unfortunate economic implications of the sectarian education system. The most recent of these is Chris Bonner's What Happened to Gonski Schools from Inside Story and a report published by the Australian Institute's Centre for Future Work. The Greens have taken up cudgels on behalf of public education. Penny Allen Payne has been emailing public school supporters, noting that public schools are underfunded by $6.6 billion every year, according to the report from the Centre for Future Work, and organised an online town hall meeting on the subject for the 31st of August 2023. She wrote... Did you hear the latest in public school funding news? A new report by the Centre for Future Work found that it would cost an additional $6.6 billion a year to ensure that all public schools receive 100% of the school resource standard, the funding level schools require to provide the bare minimum level of staffing and resources. This shortfall could be met tomorrow if Labor reduced government spending on the overfunded private system by only one third. We can't talk about student performance without talking about school funding, and the recent NAPLAN results are clear evidence that Australia needs to entirely rethink its school funding approach. These apologists have succeeded in changing the prevailing rhetoric from the mantra of educational schooling choice peddled by the coalition and private sector to equity in schooling. In the process, they are questioning the unequal funding policies, but not the fundamental difference in objectives between the two systems. Such a change in rhetoric is symptomatic of wishful thinking, but not political action. 
There is currently a lack of political will in both the public sector and their political supporters to confront the private religious sector. In public school ranks, there has always been a reluctance to bring down the charge of sectarianism on their heads by those who are the real perpetrators of sectarianism themselves. And there is an inclination to start, not with the commencement of public funding of private religious schools six decades ago in 1964, but with the more recent report of Gonski in the Gillard government of just over a decade ago. The reason for this is the desire for compromise with the private sector, with the promotion of needs policies, of which the Gonski compromise is the latest incarnation. There is also a reluctance to confront the fact that the private sector have successfully gamed every needs policy invented by politicians and educationists. This is because... Like private contractors and private consultants, they are not in the final analysis responsible or accountable to the parliament and their administration for the expenditure of public money. They are in fact a law unto themselves and their private, and in the case of many schools, religious or class objectives. The only way forward, now that many private schools are overfunded, is to take them over and make them into public schools. If they wish to remain independent, then they should reject public funding. This is why the dogs do not hold a position of advocating needs policies or any other compromise. Our 19th century forefathers, like many generations before them, understood that the principle of separation of religion from the state avoids the inequalities and sectarian problems Australia now faces in its educational system. They understood that only a public system which is public in purpose, outcome, access, ownership, control, funding and accountability can do the job of educating the children of a democratic nation. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I hope that our listeners found that of interest, but the dogs uh, are not prepared to compromise with the private sector. Uh, We have held the line of no state aid since 1964. But uh, now let's uh, find out about how fully funded public schools could more than pay for themselves. A very interesting article indeed. Thanks, Jean. So a new report published by the Australian Institute's Centre for Future Work reveals the economic payoff of fully funding public schools would be two to four times the annual cost. Released today, the report says that funding public schools to 100% of the schooling resource standard, the SRS, requires an additional $6.6 billion per year, but would deliver long-term economic and fiscal benefits between $17.8 billion and $24.7 billion a year. The returns would come from a combination of factors, lifting year 12 completion rates with the financial and social benefits that brings to that brings to individuals and the economy, along with higher direct employment levels and increased economic activity. The additional costs to governments would be entirely offset by higher revenue and reduced social spending with the benefits increasing over time. The report concludes that funding schools to 100% of the SRS, which is the minimum level governments say they need, must be seen as a long-run investment that will drive improved economic, social and fiscal performance for all sectors of the economy, including government. 
AEU Federal President Karenna Haythorpe said public schools should be fully funded by 2028. This research shows fully funding public schools will pay off for our kids and our country. Fully funding public schools is the only way to ensure that every child has every opportunity to succeed. Right now, only 1.3% of public schools are funded to the SRS and this must change when the Albanese government negotiates new school funding agreements with state and territory governments in the next 12 months. The report finds Year 12 graduates earn $10,000 a year more than early school leavers, a 21% wage premium that leads to over $400,000 in additional lifetime income. School graduates are more employable and productive in the modern economy, along with being healthier and less likely to rely on income supports and other social programs. The life chances of students reduce economic inequality and segregation and break the link between disadvantage and poor outcomes. But governments must also consider the significant and far-reaching benefits of stronger public education for economic activity, future productivity and earnings and the long-run health and well-being of our communities. It adds that hard economic arguments for improving public school funding and meeting the minimal benchmark for school resourcing established in the SRS should cement the case for providing adequate resources to Australian public schools. Ms Haythorpe said that as part of the new For Every Child campaign, the AEU has released a national plan setting out the case for full funding and the top priorities for additional investment, including including smaller class sizes, a permanent small group or individual tutoring program in every public school and additional support for students with disability or behavioural issues. And this really echoes something that Finland has known for many, many years. You invest in education means you invest in society at large. Back to you, Jean. Oh, many thanks, Dale. And in spite of what uh, all of the coalition politicians and others say money does matter when it comes to education and the way it's spent and the schools it's spent on also matter, particularly for the good of the whole nation and its children. But we'll have a bit of a break and come back to um, find out what Chris Bonner has had to say in the last few weeks. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. 
Subscribers are at the heart of our station, and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and we've got another very interesting article written by Chris Bonner, What Happened to Gonski's Schools? Thanks, Jean. So I have an article by Chris Bonner today entitled What Happened to Gonski's Schools? We are in the middle of yet another school review. In recent months, 21 Australian schools have been visited by members of the federal government's review to inform a better and fairer education system. Most of the reviewers have some familiarity with schools, but getting closer to the chalk face is all the better if you are deliberating on their future. Years ago, David Gonski and his panel also visited schools as part of their deliberations but something got lost when their recommendations were translated into spending by state and federal governments. Will it be different this time around for the schools visited by the latest panel and the 24,000 people who recently completed the review survey? Will the review, as its title suggests, create a better and fairer future? Looking at the schools Gonski visited in 2011 might help answer those questions. Are they any better off or do they still exhibit the contrasts and inequalities that have dogged schools for so long? The Gonski panellists certainly witnessed contrasts. Gonski himself saw them firsthand in two little schools, one public and the other private, in Western Sydney. The principal of the public school spoke to him about the struggle to get all of the kids to school. His counterpart in the Catholic school had a solution. If we have truancy, I tell the parents to take their kids away. He had witnessed Australia's unlevel school playing field in action. Between them, members of Gonski's panel visited 39 public and private schools in urban, regional and remote settings. While those schools may not have been representative in any statistical sense, they certainly influenced the deliberations of panel members. Ample information is available on 32 of those Gonski schools, information that suggests where they ended up a decade later. To enable a closer look, the schools can be grouped according to their socioeconomic, or in the case of schools, socioeducational, slice of Australia they served then and now. A school's place in the sun can hinge on many things. Location, leadership, the quality of teaching, the diversity and appeal of its programs. Changes in policy and practice are important, as are changes in the neighbourhood population, school openings, closures and amalgamations, and the increases or decreases in resources. My school data, especially covering who goes to which school, provides consistent clues to the profile image and progress of the schools. My school tells us that the top half of all schools, according to the Index of Community Socio-Educational Advantage, were 10% bigger on average in 2018 than in 2012, and the bottom half almost 6% smaller. Government schools especially enrolled an increasing population of the most disadvantaged students. What about funding? 
Total funding from government and fees generally went up during this time, but not in the ways that reflected differences in student need. On average, annual funding per student increased about 28%, but less for government schools, 25%, and more for independent, 32%, and Catholic schools, 38%. Capital funding per student favoured independent, Catholic, and government schools in that order. Income from fees lies at the core of Australia's divided system of schooling and largely explains what it does and doesn't deliver. Many Australians value our apparent diversity of schools and school choice, but that choice usually comes with a price tag. Fees shape the whole system. They also shape our impression of school quality. Surprisingly, when schools with similar student demographics, public and private, are compared, school achievement doesn't vary greatly. But different students increasingly go to different schools and the differences in their achievement have increasingly been associated with their socioeconomic status of their peers and their school. Who goes to which school matters, students themselves are a key and very unequal resource for the schools they attend. What happened to the Gonski schools and do they reflect these trends? First, those on top stayed on top. When the Gonski schools are grouped by their socioeconomic status of the enrolments, a group of nine at the top stands out from the rest. My school shows that they increasingly serve the most advantaged students and families. They also started and finished the post-Gonski era with the highest levels of funding from fees and government, now averaging more than $27,000 per student. Importantly, while most of this group are large and wealthy independent schools, their public funding increased as much as it did for the schools down the ladder. Most importantly, the average fee, the price tag for entry into these nine schools, is now around $18,000. These Gonski schools include Geelong Grammar School in Victoria and four in Sydney, Mariah College, Santa Sabina College, S-C-E-G-G-S Darlinghurst and St. Andrew's Cathedral School. Girton Grammar School in Bendigo joined this group, shedding some of its disadvantaged students and gaining more of the most advantaged. The two public schools in this group, Narrabunda College in Canberra and Adelaide High School, formed a second tier in terms of the socioeconomic status of their enrolments. Interestingly, the NAPLAN scores of most of these schools remained largely unchanged over the post-Gonski years. In the middle and more diverse group of Gonski schools ranked by socioeconomic advantage are 11 mainly private schools. Contrasting with the first group, these schools grew and their total income per student, averaging around $17,000, was much lower. Their NAPLAN scores also varied with a tendency to dip. Some of these schools ended up with a more disadvantaged overall enrolment. For instance, Ashdale Primary School and Living Waters Lutheran College in Western Australia, Al Amana College in Sydney, and Bendigo Southeast Secondary College in Victoria. School enrolments shifted towards the advantaged end. Meanwhile, in Holy Cross College in suburban Perth and Caroline Chisholm Catholic College and Ilham College, both in suburban Melbourne. 
a closer look at one locality reveals some of the dynamics at play. Since 2012, enrolments in the independent Ilim College have grown dramatically, but disadvantaged students make up a falling share. As is commonly the case, many of the latter students ended up at the nearby Hume Central Secondary College, as have certain students from other nearby government schools. Hume Central has also grown, but with a significantly less advantaged enrolment, though its NAPLAN scores compare favourably with those of nearby schools. This story plays out in many communities. No school is an island. The average price tag for entry into this middle group of schools is just over $3,000 per student. Not as much as for the first group, but enough to admit some students and screen others. While the experience of schools in the middle varied, the dozen lowest socioeconomic status schools five Catholic and seven public, reveal a more consistent story. At both the beginning and the end of the post-Gonski decade, most of these schools enrolled among the most disadvantaged students in Australia. Most had also stopped growing or had lost enrolments. Half, both public and Catholic, increased their enrolments of the strugglers. Among them, in the main, the schools with improving NAPLAN results were those that managed to hold their portion of advantaged students. There were exceptions. One school, Roseworth Primary School in Girraween, Western Australia, lost some advantaged students but still managed an improvement in NAPLAN. Results in Bradshaw Primary in Alice Springs also improved, as did those at St. James Catholic College in Tasmania. Did funding make enough difference? On average, the increasingly disadvantaged schools were funded at about $22,000 per student, most fun- mostly public funding, regardless of sector. The remainder averaged close to $18,000, again, mostly public funding. It is easy to argue that the difference is nowhere near enough to lift the former, What also stands out is that the changing composition of school enrolments, as much as the dollars going into the schools, appears to have most affected student prospects and student achievement. These schools serve families and communities at the struggling end, which is well illustrated by their average price tag of just $890 a year and often much less. Gonski warned that the increasing concentration of disadvantaged students had a significant impact on educational outcomes. The message still resonates, arguably more so. A majority of the most disadvantaged Gonski schools enroll an increasing concentration of low socioeconomic status students. Many advantaged students in these schools seem to have fled and taken their higher scores with them. The schools they have left behind have stopped growing, And in relative relative terms, many of them have also stopped achieving. The contrasts between the Gonski schools at the top and those at the bottom have become even more evident. The families in the top schools can pay the entry fees. The ones at the bottom cannot. Some commentators seem to believe the blame lies inside the school gate and behind the classroom door, as if the lower achieving of the Gonski schools have collectively decided to underperform. Hence, we need more data, more targets and school reforms, fewer teachers leaving the system and schools and systems made more accountable. Those kinds of reform are always needed, but they don't deal with the fundamental problem. 
As Gonski found, public funding arrangements need to reflect the nature of the educational challenges faced by a system or school. That is now widely accepted. But it is only after a decade that all sectors and governments agree. Money does matter, but the trajectory of the Gonski School suggests that certain students can be just as important a resource for schools, that the collective impact of peers on learning can make or break a school's reputation. Small wonder that the schools towards the top of the pile compete to get the best students, while those in the bottom struggle to lift those left behind. This is what the system does, and indeed seems designed to do. The consultation paper issued by the current review has bravely warned that the education system needs to be careful not to introduce additional forms of disadvantage through the design of the schooling system itself. That warning needs to morph into long overdue structural reform of our framework of schools. Gonski's review was a review of funding for schools. A decade later, the current review is a review to inform a better and fairer education system. We can't wait another decade for a review to rebuild Australia's framework of schools. Yet it is clear that this must be done as part of the process of school reform. We need to start by confronting the regressive impact of current policies and practices. The challenge is to strip the education system of discriminators, including price, that have been firmly entrenched, endemic and destructive. No one should be surprised by proposals that include abolishing fees and fully funding all schools, regardless of sector, that commit to inclusivity and a public purpose. We need big solutions and considerable structural change, starting now. The story of the Gonski schools is evidence enough that a class system of schools does nothing for fairness and comes at a considerable cost of money, opportunities and school achievement. The talented team supporting the current review has a chance to embrace a more global view of school reform. It can identify drivers of segregation in our school framework, explain the links between this and our mediocre national achievement, and recommend that work start now to reverse the current trends. Without this, what happened to the Gonski schools will increasingly become Australia's future. Good words, as always, from Chris Bonner there. Back over to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Sol. Uh, Public schools and their teachers aren't the only ones that are not happy. The public universities and their teachers are also not happy. And there's been an interesting strike up at Melbourne University. Uh, Dale's going to tell us about it. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Robin Grace here. University of Melbourne teachers and staff to strike. Teachers and staff at one of the country's richest universities will strike for up to a week as industrial negotiations between the institution and the union hit a stalemate. All national tertiary education union members at the University of Melbourne will stop work from midday on Monday. Union members who work in the Faculty of Arts, Melbourne Law School, the Victorian College of the Arts School of Art, Student Services, Stagecraft and the Library will start five to seven day action the same day. The Union's Victorian Division Secretary Sarah Roberts said thousands of students could be affected.
Strikes in the arts and law will shut down whole subjects, if not courses, for the week, she said. Members voted to strike on Wednesday after representatives of the Vice-Chancellor, Duncan Maskell, did not engage on a number of issues, the union said. Their concerns include job security, pay, workloads, flexible working arrangements and limiting restructures. Union members have sought a 15% wage increase over three years or an increase in line with increases in the Consumer Price Index that measures inflation plus 1.5%. University of Melbourne Union Branch President David Gonzalez said the negotiations had dragged on for more than a year. Staff don't take any strike action lightly, especially not for an entire working week, he said. We have been left with no choice. A University of Melbourne spokesperson said the institution had already reached in-principle agreement on a number of matters and would soon enter intensified negotiation to resolve the sticking points. As experienced across the entire sector, regrettably, bargaining has typically been protracted, the spokesperson said. The university respects the right of those individuals who choose to participate in the industrial action and those who choose not to. The spokesperson said alternative arrangements would be made for students. James Gallagher, co-convener of the Unimelb Student Support Staff Strikes campaign, said he expected many students to join staff actions throughout the week. Poor working conditions for staff have a direct impact on students' education, he said. Satisfaction levels are low, class sizes are up, and there is less opportunity for face-to-face learning and feedback between staff and students. The Tertiary Education Union's national president, Dr Alison Barnes, said the university had engaged in industrial-scale wage theft, giving it the title of Australia's worst university for underpaying of staff. Even after repaying $45 million in lost wages, university management is trying to deny staff the fair pay increase they deserve, she said. Academic and professional staff from five Victorian universities, including the University of Melbourne, went on strike in May, cancelling lectures and tutorials and massing in Melbourne's CBD in a coordinated push for higher pay and an end to the sector's heavy reliance on casual labour. Seven of Victoria's eight universities, University of Melbourne, Monash, Deakin, La Trobe, Swinburne, RMIT and Victoria University have been in enterprise bargaining negotiations for months. Roberts said Federation University had already finalised negotiations and Deakin had since reached in-principle agreement. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dale. And, of course, we're, we're very much behind the, the uh, teachers up at uh, Melbourne University. But we'll have a bit of a break now. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program because here's the good news. Uh, Threats of striking and direct action do work. Uh, the Victorian teachers' unions had a bit of a win with the Andrews government. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. 
Yeah, so I've got a little short article here. Visiting teachers' jobs saved. The Australian Education Union Victorian branch has welcomed the announcement that the Andrews government will not cut visiting teacher positions. Education Minister Hutchins has listened to the calls of AEU members, parents and carers and schools with the decision ensuring that public school students with significant additional needs will continue to receive the critical education and support provided by visiting teachers. This is an important win for our members and the students, their families and schools they work with. AEU members are congratulated for all their efforts to campaign against these cuts. By highlighting the important role visiting teachers play in our schools, we've been able to ensure the continuation of this important program, said Victorian Branch President Meredith Peace. Visiting teachers are expert, specialised teachers who play a crucial role in our public schools and help ensure that students in need get the support they require to thrive academically and socially. We are pleased the Minister has genuinely engaged with the AEU, parents, disability advocacy groups, families and the community and has taken this proposal off the table. And this union win ensures that visiting teachers will continue to play an important role across Victoria's public schools, Ms Peace said. And we've got another article here which also is interesting. NAPLAN, Australia can't close achievement gaps without closing resources gaps. So the release today of the 2023 NAPLAN results showing significant numbers of students across Australia require additional support in literacy and numeracy reinforces the need for fully funding of public schools. NAPLAN is just one measure of student achievement and its importance should not be overrated but the overall pattern of these results add to the evidence about the unacceptable achievement gaps between students from different backgrounds and locations, said Australian Education Union Federal President Corinna Haythorpe. While nationally one in ten students are identified as needing additional support in literacy and numeracy, that proportion rises to as high as nine out of ten for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students in very remote parts of the Northern Territory. What we need is real action from the politicians to ensure public schools are funded to deliver the additional support to the children who need it. We can't close the achievement gaps without closing the resource gaps. Public schools educate most of the students with higher needs and yet only 1.3 are funded to the SRS, which is the minimum level governments agreed that they need. In the Northern Territory, where students' needs are highest, the public schools are the most underfunded in the nation, receiving only 80% of the SRS. That effectively means there's no funding for one in five students, which is scandalous. Funding public school systems at 100% of the SRS across Australia is the only way to ensure every child gets every opportunity to succeed and we have the teachers we need for the future. This has to happen by 2028. The needs of our children are growing, but the funding from governments hasn't kept up. Government funding for private schools has been increasing at twice the rate of public school funding and 98% of private schools are resourced at or above the SRS. As part of the For Every Child campaign, we have released a national plan setting out the top priorities for additional investment, which includes smaller class sizes, a permanent small group or individual tutoring program in every 
every public school and additional support for students with a disability or behavioural issues. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much. Well, and off we go to America and the UK. Over to Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And we're going to look at an article that was posted on Diana Ravitch's blog, which we follow weekly. And um, it's actually from a network of, for publiceducation.org, which is an organisation of basically teachers who are in, for improving public education. This is from the August 24th uh, uh, article of Stephen Singer. It's called Teach for America, Choking on Its Own Failure. Teach for America, so you know, is a TFA, is an organisation that gets um, university graduates who aren't otherwise qualified in teaching and gives them a five-week crash course and um, then um, seeks to place them in, 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 uh, in high schools. So Stephen Singer reminds us, reminds us that TFA was early in its claims that there was a teacher exodus and they could fix it. Turns out they weren't the saviours of the profession. OK, and... Stephen Singer says, Educators have been leaving the profession for decades due to poor salary, poor working conditions and heavy expectations and lack of tools or respect. So Wendy Kopp, when in Princeton, created a program to fast-track non-education majors into the classroom where they would teach for a few years and then enter the private sector as, inverted commas, experts to drive public policy. These college graduates would take a five-week crash course in education and commit to, to at least two years in, in the classroom, thereby filling any vacant teaching positions. Surprise, it didn't work. In fact, it made things worse. Apparently, deprofessionalising education isn't an incentive to dive into the field. That isn't to say everyone who went through the program became a bad teacher, but the few good and committed, committed educators that did come through the program could have done so even more successfully by graduating with a, a degree in education. Now the organisation crea created in 1990 is expecting its lowest enrolment in 15 years. TFA anticipates placing slightly less than 2,000 teachers in schools across the country this fall. That's two-thirds of the number of first-year teachers TFA placed in schools in the fall 2019, and just one-third of the number it sent into the field at its height in 2013. Apparently, fewer people than ever don't want to train for four to five years to become lifelong teachers, and neither do they want to be lightly trained for a few years as TFA recruits either, even if that means they can pass themselves off as education experts afterwards and get high-paying policy positions at think tanks and government. On the one hand, this is good news. Watering down what it means to be a teacher is even less popular than actually being an educator. On the other hand, we have a major crisis that few people are prepared to handle. The US is losing teachers at an alarming rate. After decades of neglect, only made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic, we're missing almost a million teachers. Nationwide, we only have 3.2 million teachers left. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are 567,000 fewer educators in our public schools today than there were before the pandemic, and that's on top of already losing 250,000 school employees during the recession of 2008-09, most of whom who were never replaced. All the while, enrolment increased by 800,000 students. Meanwhile, finding replacements has been difficult. Across the country, an average of one educator is hired 
for every two jobs available. Not only are teachers paid 20% less than other college-educated workers with similar experience, but a 2020 survey found that 67% of teachers have or had a second job to make ends meet. It's no wonder that then few college students want to enter the profession. Over the past decade, there's been a major decline in enrolment in bachelor degree programs in education. Beginning in 2011, enrolment in such programs and new education certifications in Pennsylvania, my home state, started to decline. Today, only about a third as many students are enrolled in teacher prep programs in the Commonwealth as there were 10 years ago, and state records show no uh, new certifications are down by two-thirds over that period. To put that more concretely, a decade ago, roughly 20,000 new teachers entered the workforce each year in the Commonwealth, while last year only 6,000 did so, according to the State Department of Education. But don't look to most of the so-called experts to solve the problem. A great deal of them are former TFA recruits. Through programs like TFA's Capitol Hill Fellows Program, alumni are placed in full-time paid staff positions with legislators so they can gain insights into the legislative process by working in a congressional office, inverted commas, and work on projects that impact education and opportunities for youth. Why do so many lawmakers hire them? Because they don't cost anything. Their salaries are paid in full by TFA through a fund established by Arthur Rock, a California tech billionaire who hands the organisation bags of cash to pay these educational aid salaries. From 2006 to 2008 alone, Rock, who, sit, who also sits on the TFA's board, contributed $16.5 million for this purpose. This isn't about helping law, lawmakers understand the issues. It's about framing the issues to meet the policy initiatives of the elite and wealthy donors. It's about selling school privatisation, high-stakes testing and ed-tech solutions. As US Representative Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez, OAC, said on a call with Justice Democrats, I don't think people who are taking money from pharmaceutical companies should be drafting healthcare legislation. I don't think people who are taking money from oil and gas companies should be drafting our climate legislation. I'd like to add the following. People taking money from the testing and school privatisation industry shouldn't be drafting education policy. People who worked as temps in order to give themselves a veneer of credibility should not be treated with the same bona fide experts, same as bona fide, bona fide experts who dedicate their lives to kids in the classroom. The whole point of this scam is to serve the needs of the privatisation movement. Investors want to change public education into a cash cow. They want to alter the rules so that corporations running districts as charter or voucher schools can cut services for children and use the extra cash for profits. And that starts with teachers. If we allow privatisers to replace well-prepared and trained teachers with lightly trained temps, we can reduce the salaries we pay instructors. We delegitimise the profession. We redefine the job teacher. It is no longer a highly trained professional. It's something anyone can do from off the street. Thus, we can pay poverty wages. And the savings from cutting salaries can all go into our corporate pockets. This kind of flim-flam would never be allowed with our present crop of highly trained professionals because many of them belong to labour unions. We have to give them the boot so we can exterminate their unions and thus provide easy pickings for the profiteers. 
This helps explain why so many plans to address the teacher exodus are focused almost exclusively on recruiting new hires while completely ignoring the much larger numbers of experienced teachers looking for the exits. According to the National Educational Association, NEA, it's, it is teachers who are quitting that is driving the significant part of the current educator shortage. More teachers quit the job than those who retire, are laid off, are transferred to other locations, go on disability or die. And this has remained true almost every year for the last decade, with few exceptions. To put it another way, you can't stop a ship from sinking if you don't plug up the leak first. But experienced teachers always have been the biggest obstacle to privatising public schools and expanding standardised testing. That's why replacing them with new educators has been one of the highest priorities of corporate education reform. After all, it's much harder to try and indoctrinate seasoned educators with propaganda that goes against everything they learned to be true about their students and the profession in a lifetime of class time, classroom practice than to encourage those with no practical experience to just drink the Kool-Aid. So it should come as no surprise that the supply-side policymakers are using the current teacher exodus as an excuse to remake the profession in their own image. As Ram Emanuel, Chief of Staff to President Barack Obama, later Chicago Mayor, said, you never get a serious, let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is, it's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. If our policymakers really want to solve the problem, we'd spend at least as much time keeping the experienced teachers we have as trying to get the new ones to join their ranks. Research shows that teacher experience matters. The common refrain that teacher experience does not matter after the first few years in the classroom is no longer supported by the preponderance of the research. Tarakini and Anne Poldolsky write in a... Does teaching experience increase, increase teacher effectiveness? We find that teaching experience is, on average, positively associated with student achievement and gains throughout a teacher's career. Their analysis is based on 30 studies published over the last 15 years and concludes, one, experienced teachers, on average, are the more effective in raising student achievement, both test scores and classroom grades, than less experienced ones. Two, teachers do better as they gain experience. Researchers have long documented that teachers improve dramatically during their first few years on the job. However, teachers make even further gains in subsequent years. Three, experienced teachers also reduce student absences, encourage students to read for recreational purposes outside of the classroom, serve as mentors for young teachers and help to create and maintain a strong school community. The road to keeping experienced teachers isn't exactly mysterious. First, there must be an increase in salary. Teacher pay must be at least adequate, including the expectation that as educators gain experience, their salaries will rise in line with what college graduates earn in comparable professions. This is not happening now. In addition, something must be done to improve teachers' working conditions. Lack of proper support and supportive administrators is one of the main reasons experienced teachers leave the building or the profession. And perhaps the most obviously... Uh, politicians have to stop scapegoating educators for all of society's problems and even for all of the problems of the school system. Teachers don't get to make policy. They are rarely even allowed a voice, but they are blamed for everything that happens in and around education. If we want teachers to work with socially disadvantaged students, they must be provided with the institutional supports needed to be effective and steadily advance their skills. But this requires making education a priority and not a political football. 
To do that, you would need to stop bankrolling organisations like TFA. However, the billionaires funding school privatisation and the standardised testing industry would never allow it. So, unlike our public schools, as fewer and fewer applicants come to TFA, there will always be money to keep it afloat. Those who are causing the teacher exodus will never be the ones to fix it. Um, I think it was a terrific article. And um, similar things have been touted here. We hope that doesn't happen. Let's hope that our teachers remain the professional experts that they are in education. We're going to nip across the, uh, the ditch. This time we're going to take an unusual but a good article. Uh, it's in The Big Issue um, in England and it's posted by Paul McNamee on the 28th of August 23. And the article is, If we want the UK to be an education powerhouse, we must abandon old school thinking. Um, education needs an urgent rethink to make so sure future generations aren't let down. If you're lucky, you'll have had an education moment. There will be a person uh, in your life who, to lift your eyes and expand your horizon. It may not, not be quite Robin Williams in the Dead, Dead Poets Society, though frankly that didn't end well for everybody, but there will have been a teacher or somebody at your school who introduced you to something that stuck so fast you can trace much that came after to then. Equally, old annoyances linger. These could be anything. You might harbour abiding frustration at the new teacher who played you out of position so you'll eventually be benched from the school Gaelic football team just a few months after you've been captain and led them to greater success than they'd had previously as your school was more known for hurling. And you may carry this with you for 30 years, but that's clearly just a hypothetical as no sane person would allow such a minor inconsequence to linger. Nobody recalls the sustaining part of education in terms of exams and test success, yet this remains the marker, and increasingly all education is weighed by usefulness, and it is impacting every aspect of life. Uh, league tables in England result in parents racing to enrol their children in well-performing schools, which brings competition for homes, forcing up prices and making these areas increasingly exclusive, and the local schools the preserve of the middle class. So state education becomes quasi-private, with the premium paid on house prices, not in teaching. Universities race to keep their heads afloat. They open the doors to ever-increasing numbers of students from overseas, as this is where the money is. Places for UK students are fewer, and costs for them spiral, except for Scottish students in Scotland, who, so far, are not required to pay annual fees. With universities illustrating their value through graduate employability, some courses are judged surplus, and we see open hostility from a government that condemns low-value degrees. You have to wonder what purpose Tony Blair's goal of 50% of Britain's going to university will serve if students are moving into jobs that don't pay or offer brighter futures, leaving them carrying a lifetime debt, or even see them taking action against colleges they deem to have failed them. If you commodify a product, don't be surprised if those paying for it question its value. The Westminster government might claim their focus on apprenticeships shows they are moving beyond traditional tertiary choices, but experts, experts insist it isn't working. Figures show that of the 348,000 people who started some form of apprenticeship in 21 in England, around 163,000 of them are estimated not to have completed them. The training and opportunities aren't cutting it. At the other end, we see, we've seen teachers quitting the profession in huge numbers, citing pay and corrosive fear of Ofsted inspections. 
The Department of Education found 40,000 teachers resigned from state schools in England last year, with another 4,000 4, retiring. That is hardly sustainable. So what is the point of education? How does the UK become a powerhouse fit to meet the needs of the pupils and skills needed for an evolving world? The first has to be to invest properly, help the schools that need it, and make social mobility more than an easily trotted out soundbite. Make state education just as good as private. Stop trying to politicise third level. Encourage students to annoy and challenge and put right, the right level of money into universities to allow this. Then, listen carefully. What is the point of encouraging smart young people to learn and apply critical thinking, then avoid using it in future? And listen to teachers. They understand more than the rest of us do. The point of education has to be providing space to grow for the future for all. And Paul McNamee is the editor of The Big Issue, issue um, in England. So um, that was a good article, I thought, and I think we have the same problems here. So I think it's all quite relevant to the Australian dilemma, the Australian Malay, educational malaise. You want to go back to you, Jean? Well, thank you, Jeff. And now, of course, our time is going very quickly, but we must have our good news story, our great state school. And here is Andy. To tell us about it. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great. Schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Warrigal Regional College in Warrigal, Victoria, in the Gippsland region. Warrigal Regional College is a co-education secondary school serving years 7 to 12. Uh, it is one of 131 government schools in the Warrigal area. The total enrolment of 764 and in year 12, 108. Uh, it's a boarding school and as well as offering the regular year 12 curriculum, it also offers the International Baccalaureate. It accepts international students, offers VCAL and VET. Um, they have a mix of maths classes, mixed English classes, and they teach Indonesian and Japanese. Um, if you look at the Year 12 performance, we have academic results, a median score of 26, satisfactory completions of VCE, 95%, satisfactory completions of VET, 70%. In terms of where are these students going, we have 42% bachelor enrolled, 15% TAFE or VET enrolled, 6% apprentice and trainee, and 29% employed. Um, the ACARA information is that the ICSIA value is below average at 975. The upper 25% parental income is um, 5% of um, students. The second level, um, the next quartile, 18%. The third quartile, below 50%, is 34%. And the lowest quartile, 43%. So really a school with many, many disadvantaged students with 4% speaking a language other than English and 3% Indigenous students. Um, their finances show recurrent grants from the federal government of $2.2 million and $8.7 million from the Victorian government. Fees and parental contributions make up another approximate half a million and other private contributions another half a million, which gives us a total of $15,750 per pupil. 
Their capital is very low, 204000 But if we look at their NAPLAN results, everything is average or above, above average for writing. So congratulations to Warrigal Regional College. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much uh, uh, for that. And um, our time is gone. And I have to say, if you'd like to find out more about us, then our website is www.adogs.in. Thank you to Dale and thank you to Andy. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you to Sorrel uh, for helping us to put this to air today. And uh, from all of us and at the dogs, it is bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.